Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last week, we brought you a series on the intersection of the sciences and power politics. We talked about how scientific fields like biology, physics, and the practice of medicine are not benign. They were developed and are practiced today with an intentionality based in power politics. Today, we conclude the series with a conversation that Worldview's Julian Haida had with Langdon Winner, a humanities professor at Rensselaer Polytech Institute. They looked at how race, power, and class drove America's technological innovations and still do. Professor, in 1980, you wrote this paper called Do Artifacts Have Politics, which set off this conversation about do objects, advancements, does scientific knowledge have a politic behind them or do they exist on their own? And your answer was a pretty definitive yes. And you cite things like, you know, the way that roads are designed and the way that technological advances have emerged from social concerns of an age. What made you think that perhaps objects don't exist on their own, that objects are a product of social and cultural environments? Well, it really came out of my study in political science and particularly the uh, history of uh, political theory, especially in the West. And it occurred to me at a certain point that uh, many of the things I was studying about that uh, have to do with constitutions and laws and political practices and institutions had many of the same features of uh, political valence that you can find in, let's say, conventional politics. A good example, I think, very briefly, is the history of the American municipal uh, swimming pool. It began in the late 19th century when uh, middle-class people got grossed out by the spectacle of working-class boys taking off their clothes and jumping in the river. And that began the building of these municipal uh, swimming pools. At first, men and women could not swim in the pools, so the very design of the pools had, uh, there were two of them, one for men and one for women. The big development came really in the 1920s when swimming went into fashion. It was promoted in uh, sports, the Olympics, for example, in movies, uh, famous uh, people swimming in Hollywood movie scenes. But the crucial point was that when you had African-Americans trying to get into the pool, uh, this was a source of conflict. So eventually you had segregation of these beautiful, large uh, swimming pools. So if you look at the history of the pools over that decades-long period, the shapes change, the rules change. Eventually they become part of civil rights litigation in the courts and so forth. So my main point is by looking at a material object, you can learn a lot about what's happening in society. So what are some of the dangers of pretending that despite these objects being inanimate are justified using scientific knowledge but still perpetuate injustice? Well, I think the problem with the language of science and engineering is that it leads you to think that, uh, well, we'll just proceed with the, the equations and the engineering structures and all the things you need to make these things happen. Right now, for example, in the last uh, three decades or so, we've rebuilt America around computers, communication, information systems, and so forth. And surprise, surprise, we note, uh uh-oh, they're widening gaps of inequality of income and wealth, a tremendous concentration of power in the hands of a few, a few billionaires, 
And in the meantime, while all of this has been happening, American society has literally been reinvented. It's been repatterned and so forth. These dynamics have led to rapidly increasing levels of inequality. A lot of our, let's say, the engineers that I teach don't learn history. Uh, They don't learn anything about human choices over time. So they will go to work for a Facebook or a Google or Apple or whatever and participate in choices, the design of equipment and systems and so forth, which have the outcome in the fullness of time of producing the kinds of really toxic and obnoxious patterns that I've mentioned. From the beginning of the American Republic, the idea has been that the latest and greatest technology would lead to democratizing society. There's, you know, decade after decade, these hymns of celebration about the power of the new instruments, the new systems, be it the canals or the railroads or the telephone, the radio, television, and and so forth. These are finally going to democratize society. And uh, what that contributes to is a kind of celebration that tends to discourage critical reflection on what kinds of institutions and what kinds of social patterns are uh, taking shape. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida, talking with Langdon Winner. He's Chair of Humanities and Social Sciences at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. In 1980, he wrote this landmark paper that asked the question, do artifacts have politics? We talked a little bit about the belief in the early American Republic that technology would lead to further democratization. And some of the philosophers of the Industrial Revolution talked about this relationship. And there seemed to have been an argument in the mid-19th century among these philosophers around the time of the Industrial Revolution that authoritarianism may still persist with technological advancements, particularly the rise of mechanized labor and things like that. What was the fear at the time, and does any of that persist to today? The analysis basically said that unless something intervened, let's say labor unions or workers' resistance, or in the case of Marx and Engels, finally it would be a uh, society-transforming revolution, that the dynamics of capital, basically, would lead to the concentration of power in the hands of the wealthy. And in that position, let's say working through government, they could take steps to uh, suppress any forms of resistance. In the late 19th century in the USA, we had the populist movement, mainly a farmer's movement and progressive movement, that pushed back. And that took the form primarily of something we've gotten out of the habit of doing in the United States, namely um, antitrust policies, where you had huge concentrations of power in the railroads, in the banks, in the emerging oil companies, and even people, Republicans, like Theodore Roosevelt said, power of this kind is dangerous. And to restore and revitalize democracy, we need to break up these huge concentrations of power. I think what's happened in the last um, 40, 50 years in the United States is Americans have been sold notions of freedom, which have led to deunionization. And the uh, basic theme in that march, I would say, sponsored by people like the Koch brothers and their billionaire networks, 
is basically Americans love freedom, and what that ultimately means is the freedom of self-interested individuals in the marketplace. In the discussion of technological advancement, engineering, science, a lot of those technological advancements have been relegated to the private sector. So you're seeing the rise of SpaceX run by a private individual as opposed to institutions like NASA, which uh, so many of the technological advancements that we use that have perhaps democratized our society aren't coming out of the public sector anymore. Is there a danger well, I think in that? that's somewhat of an illusion because there's hundreds of billions of dollars spent in military research development. Silicon Valley arose initially from about three decades of government funding for research development and the first product runs that would come out of these high-tech companies uh, the government would pay for also. So the idea has become, you know, oh, is Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak working in a garage, and that's where these things came from. The idea that it's bold entrepreneurs overlooking the part of the history which was, and to a large extent still is, rather covertly government-funded. Amazon is now making high-tech systems, selling them to the military-industrial complex, it's interesting that you mentioned Amazon because they have a massive cloud platform that a lot of government institutions use to keep data, but also because Amazon has very much publicized in recent years the machine learning algorithms that are intended to make hiring practices more equitable. So they have developed artificial intelligence that reads resumes, and actually the ACLU late last year is challenging a law that penalizes journalists and researchers for practicing out these algorithms, these machine learning algorithms, and these researchers have found that these algorithms end up replicating human biases like gender and racial bias, even though they are computers and supposedly right. aren't subject to the same biases as humans are, and yet these computers are doing it worse, and it's almost justifiable because the computers can be said are just looking for the best candidate. That's what they always say, you know, we're, we're going to improve society and improve democracy and so forth. But you look at it more closely, very often you find either deliberate or perhaps inadvertent biases. For example, in uh, Amazon's facial recognition programs, it was a test done on it. They were looking for people that couldn't be hired because they had criminal records, right? So you go through the facial recognition of people in the database. I think they took 135 members of Congress. And they found a couple dozen <laughs> that the Amazon system had rejected for possible employment as uh, likely criminals. And I think a lot of the politics of artifacts in the decades to come is going to focus on algorithms, things like the properties of the self-driving car, what are we going to do with the drones, and so forth. And my main worry is that people who are just doing code and building hardware and trying to make money by building larger systems will have no understanding of or care about things like equality, social justice, democracy, and so forth. So you go down another decade or two or three or four, and people say, oops, what has happened to our society? I'm hearing these days people say, well, in order to join these discussions, you need to be fluent in the area of technology that is involved. You have to be fluent about coding. You have to understand computer science and so forth. Otherwise, and this is argued often these days, 
if you don't understand the inner guts of the technology, you can't join the conversation. You have to be fluent. In other words, you sort of have to be today's technocrats, right? My response to that is the people that are making that claim are themselves profoundly ignorant about fundamental questions about law, sociology, ethics, philosophy, and so forth. For example, the founders of the American Republic, people like uh, Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson, you go back and read their writings, including, let's say, the Federalist Papers, they were profoundly suspicious of concentrations of power. That's a lot of what they've added to political knowledge in uh, the history of world political theory. In the 1960s and early 1970s, there was a movement coming out of the U.S. Congress called Technology Assessment. Eventually, they founded an office in Congress called the Office of Technology Assessment, the purpose of which was to foster widespread study and debate about the future of American society at a time in which it was clear to everybody that emerging technologies like computers were going to change social patterns, the kind of work that people do might introduce dangerous databases that would invade people's privacy and so forth. And for about two decades, this organization did excellent studies about the choices. They would hold meetings where these things were hashed out and debated, and it was an emerging kind of civic, I would call it civic intelligence. And what happened was in the early 1990s, there was an off-term election, and the Republicans came to power under the leadership of Newt Gingrich. And almost the first thing Gingrich did was to abolish the Office of Technology Assessment. And what that signaled was the following. Yes, technology is rapidly advancing. It's going to change the world we live in. But we're going to let the big investors and the corporations decide. There isn't going to be a lively, broadly spread debate about what the emerging patterns should be. We'll just leave that up to what's called the market. When our current presidential administration embraced this reactionary rejection of scientific knowledge, the other side seems to embrace uncritically scientific truth and the belief that technologies will solve social problems. Is there a danger in that belief? You know, the ideal mix is to become knowledgeable about both dimensions. You know, learn the science, learn the technology, or at least the basic patterns emerging, and also learn the uh, critical debates about human life. And in particular, do one's best to revive discussions about the obligations that we have to each other and what a good society would look like if it tried to democratize and equalize access to key institutions. You know, I've spent my life teaching science and engineering students. I deeply respect what they know and do. But I also say, well, you have to think about your own role as a citizen. You have to think very broadly and not in a superficial way about the ethical choices in your own profession. And one thing you should definitely do is look at the basic patterns taking shape in your own society, which are in many ways, looking forward, quite ominous. 
Langdon Winner is Chair of Humanities and Social Sciences at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. In 1980, he wrote a landmark paper that asked the question, do artifacts have politics and has continued to research the relationship between technology and society? Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Winner. Thank you, Julie, and I appreciate it. You can look back on previous segments in our series on the intersection of the sciences and power politics on our website at wbez.org slash worldview. Coming up after the break, we'll find out about the lethal elements of right-wing extremism. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism tracks murders perpetrated by extremists. Their report on 2018 made headlines for its conclusion that every single extremist killing from Pittsburgh to Parkland had a link to right-wing extremism. Let's talk about the trends in extremism with Mark Pitkevich. He's a senior research fellow with the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. He's been researching domestic murders since 2008. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, my, na- my name is uh, last name is Pitkevich. Pitkevich. Thanks. And I wanted to ask about why your what your philosophy is about uh, murders and researching murders specifically, because lots of organizations, including your own at the ADL, you track hate crimes, the FBI, the Arab American Institute, Southern Poverty Law Center, and you've concentrated on tracking murders by extremists. What was the log- logic there? Well, you know, it turns out that extremism is a very difficult um, area to study with 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 any sort of numbers i mean you know if uh, because so many of these groups uh, are underground or set, you know close to that you know you can't you can't it's hard to get estimates of numbers of different types of extremist movements because uh, they'll either refuse to talk to you or give you inflated numbers no one wants to admit if their group is declining um, there are some things that you can measure. You can look at uh, terrorist plots and conspiracies that have occurred. Uh, uh, and another thing that you can look at are, are murders. And and so we actually track both of those. And, and we have tracked extremist-related murders in the United States um, starting in 2008 and going forward. And we've also tried to backdate our data so that we have – uh, uh, data on extremist-related murders going all the way back to 1970. And when you do that, you know, it, it helps you identify certain trends or danger areas. It helps you learn things to understand what you're confronting. What kind of things are you getting out of this? What, what trends do you see when you track the murders? Um, well, 
you know, one of the one of the things that became obvious to to to, to me when I began compiling these uh, uh, numbers originally, and as as it stayed consistent since then, is that most of the extremist related murders in the United States um, are committed by uh, right wing extremists, whether white supremacists or anti government extremists like militia groups or or other types of extremists. Um, uh, domestic Islamist extremists commit about 24% of extremist-related murders um, in the past, let's say, 10 years. Left-wing extremists, about 3%. Um, but the bulk, uh, a little over 73%, have been committed by right-wing extremists. And that's not the only measure out there. Um, but it's certainly enough to suggest that, that right-wing extremism is a problem that we may need to take a little bit more seriously than we have been in the past. Why do you think so many right-wing extremists move into this lethal realm? Well, there, there are a couple of reasons why the, the numbers are pretty high. The first is we have a lot of right-wing extremists um, in the United States. Depending upon how you sort of divide things or slice things, we've got somewhere around 15 different right-wing extremist movements that are active in the United States that have some sort of association with violent activity. And some of these uh, uh, movements, you know, have uh, uh, tens of thousands or even over 100,000 adherents. And so when you add it all up, it's still, you know, small compared to a mainstream movement like environmentalism or uh, 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 right to keep and bear arms movement. Um, But it's still nevertheless a lot. Moreover, uh, many of these right wing extremist movements have an ethos or a subculture in which in which violence is an accepted solution to a problem, um, in which violence may even be one of the uh, uh, accepted means you know, for their visions of social or political or other change. And then lastly, um, there are a number of, you know, a, a lot, a, a number of right-wing extremist murders are non-ideological in nature. They're, they're murdering people because they believe they might be an informant for the police or they're murdering them because they're part of a gang that's also involved uh, – a white supremacist gang that's also involved with drug activity and they may murder someone over drugs. Uh, and so there's non-ideological violence as well as ideological violence with some of these right-wing extremist movements. How do you find out if somebody is really legitimately involved with an extremist movement? Is there uh, – is are there the ID cards? What do you do? <laughs> well, sometimes you know, sometimes sometimes it's easy if if a, a perpetrator is uh, uh, tatted from head to toe with white supremacist tattoos. That's a relatively you know that's a relatively easy spot. Um, you know, some extremists will openly admit their extremist affiliations. In other cases, uh, law enforcement officers or journalists investigating a murder may uncover those sorts of affiliations. What we try to distinguish, and this is particularly true with regard to white supremacist movements, we try to distinguish between someone who is merely racist or bigoted and someone who actually has affiliation with a particular white supremacist movement or has white supremacist ideology. So there are a lot more people out there who may be racist than there are who are full-fledged white supremacists. And if someone was simply a racist and killed someone we would not be including that in our stats. There has to be some sort of connection to an extremist movement or ideology. And how, is social media an important place to learn about people's affiliation with extremist movement these days? 
Yeah, social media uh, is extremely important, and it has it's one of the factors that has allowed us to identify more extremist-related uh, uh, murders than might have been possible uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And it's also one of the reasons why our no- we don't compare our numbers from the 70s or 80s to our numbers now because we know that uh, uh, our numbers back from back then are an undercount. Uh, so much so that this is not a reliable comparison. Hmm. And is it true that um, why, why do people um, talk about their extremism on Facebook? I don't know. I don't know why. If you're uh, like uh, planning or thinking even about law breaking, and uh, you're talking about it on Facebook, why, why, what's going on there? Should it? Uh, should Facebook be taking this thing down if they're expressing hate-filled things already? Is there some kind of thing going on there? Well, most people, you know, most people are not actually going to be talking about killing people on Facebook. They'll, they'll be, you know, but, but they may be quite willing to uh, express their ideology or their beliefs. You know, your, whatever your, your ideological beliefs are, just like your, or your religious beliefs, they're deep-seated beliefs. And, 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 and especially if you're, uns- if you're an extremist, you're unhappy with the status quo, right? Extremists radically want to change society because they don't like the way it is now. And so they tend to wear their hearts on their sleeve, right? They tend to want to speak out about the beliefs that they have, about the way they see the world around them, um, um, sometimes to get other people to agree with them or to help them change things, sometimes just to get it off their chest. And sometimes, you know, a lot of extremists are more circumspect. They're, they're not, uh, especially if they're a white supremacist and they might you know, lose their job, they may not be so blatant about it, but they may use coded words or terms or phrases that only another white supremacist would recognize, uh, but an average person who randomly came across that Facebook profile or, or Twitter profile or what have you, you know, would not necessarily recognize. Uh, but if you're an expert on it, if you you know, if you know what to look for, um, you know, then then you can uh, uh, figure that out. I'm talking with Mart Pit, uh, Pitkalvich, and he's a senior research fellow with the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. He's been researching domestic murder since 2008, and he is the author of the 2018 report on uh, tracking extremist murders. It found that uh, every single extremist murder in 2018 was had a link to right-wing extremism. Uh, before we leave the Facebook thing, I, I understand that Facebook really takes down people's pages quickly sometimes if they are accused of an extremist murder. Um, how it, are, are you, do you get to see those pages or are they – is that the important information? Why are they taking it down after the fact? What happens there? Well, Facebook appears to have a policy of taking down the, the Facebook profiles of people who have been uh, uh, arrested or charged with any sort of high-profile murder, whether extremist or not. Um, and so, if you want, you know, if if the the murder is an obscure murder that most people don't know about, that profile, the profile of the suspect is probably going to stay. Uh, but if it's a high-profile thing, often it's a race against time to be able to locate and view, to analyze a profile before uh, Facebook takes it down. And, and there have been several times over the years when a profile has been taking it down while I was in the middle of viewing it. Wow. What, it, do you understand Facebook's logic there? What is it? Um, well, uh, I can't speak for Facebook. You would have to uh, talk to them about that. Uh, 
but um, you know, I, I yeah, I, I can't. I just can't speak to that. I, should, I think I mean, are, should that be available? Some, reasonable reasons why why a platform might want to do that. Um, so I don't, I certainly wouldn't criticize them for that. Um, but you'd have to speak to them with, for their exact reasons. All right. But do you think that information should be available to people? Uh, well, I, I presume, uh, uh, that they, uh, uh, will make, would make it available to law enforcement. I just not the general public. Um, you know, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about, um, whether you think this is on the rise or not. Um, and whether right-wing extremism and, and murders uh, are on the rise because there's been so much talk about Donald Trump and the rhetoric that he has. And yesterday we were talking to the Committee to Protect Journalists and discussing uh, how the president in the Philippines has adopted fake news as a term and it's going to you know, hurt journalists who are getting hassled in the Philippines. Is the same thing kind of thing true with some of the rhetoric uh, that the president espouses and um, and crimes. Well, it's you know it, it's often hard to it's often hard to relate a specific criminal act to to rhetoric from a prominent figure um, unless the person uh, uh, who committed the act you know admits such or or it's otherwise obvious. Like perhaps an example of that might be Cesar Sayak, the, who, who sent the pipe bombs to people. Um, who clearly seem to have been influenced by Trump-related rhetoric. For a lot of other murders, something like that might have only a very indirect influence or, or no influence at all. Um, I think, you know, in terms of – we have seen in recent years a rise of extremist-related murders. Um, and I think those can be attributed to three very different factors. Um, one is uh, we've had – in the past several years, we've had a resurgence of right-wing extremism, and that has certainly played a role. Um, like with the October uh, uh, shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue um, by a white supremacist where 11 people lost their lives. But another factor um, in the past several years uh, was the rise of ISIS, which the influence of ISIS um, caused a number of domestic Islamist extremists to uh, uh, engage in shooting sprees or other attempts to cause mass casualties. And that bumped up the total numbers, not for um, not for 2018, but for of the past, the past several years before that, and the third thing is the uh, uh, prevalence of shooting sprees. Nothing, unfortunately, bumps up murder totals more than someone who engages in a shooting spree and, and is able to kill uh, multiple victims. And in the past several years, we have had a number, a number of high-profile, high-casualty shooting sprees by left-wing extremists, by domestic Islamist extremists, and by right-wing extremists. And all those things together really bump up the stats. Uh, outside of the straight uh, murders by right-wing extremists, do you get the feeling like there is any sense of disarray among white ring right-wing extremism? Uh, I was reading in The Guardian about how after the Charlottesville rally in 2017 that uh, there's been so much attention focused on right-wing extremist groups that they've uh, actually had troubles and uh, have problems recruiting and their leadership is up in arms and a group like Identity Europa is uh, seen its leadership change three times since then. And uh, is there – do you have to get the feeling like there's a downtrend in some of these extremist groups? Well, um, uh, uh, I think it's – first of all, this is sort of gets to be a complicated issue. First of all, there are – 
Now, again, there are many right-wing extremist movements, only some of which have gotten a lot of attention in recent years from the media, um, particularly the white supremacist movements. But others, anti-Muslim extremists, anti-government extremists, um, um, have gotten far less attention. Um, another factor is even with uh, uh, the white supremacists who did get a lot of scrutiny and uh, uh, several prominent figures in the white supremacist movement and several groups saw themselves deplatformed, uh, which you know caused a great caused considerable disarray with those segments of the white supremacist movement. Um, but some people have been reading far too much into that. Um, if you look at other uh, aspects, you know Richard Spencer, uh, the white supremacist, may have been. Uh, discomfited uh, uh, by events after Charlottesville, but white supremacist podcasts are still very popular. White supremacist groups like Identity Europa and Patriot Front are engaging in more white supremacist flyering propaganda campaigns now than we have seen uh, as long as I can remember um, with right-wing extremists. Um, Hundreds of incidents around the country this past year. Uh, And so by all these other measures, um, white supremacy and right-wing extremism both, you know, are still, you know, very much in the mix and, 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 and have not necessarily suffered a meaningful loss yet. Mark Pitkavich is a senior research fellow with the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. He's been researching domestic murder since 2008. Their latest uh, report on 2018 made headlines for its conclusion that every uh, extremist killing had a link to right-wing extremism. Thanks a lot for joining us and parsing some of the right-wing extremism that's out there. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear about a new exhibit on the domestic slave trade. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a new exhibit that just opened up on the era of the domestic slave trade. It's called Purchased Lives, the American Slave Trade from 1808 to 1865. It's at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. With me is Ariel Weininger, and she is the chief curator of collections and exhibitions at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. Nice to see you, Ariel. Thanks for having me. And Kelly Zaney is here also. She is vice president of education and exhibitions at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. Um, why did you want to bring this exhibit on the slave trade to the Illinois Holocaust Museum? So I think any time that we can bring a special exhibition into our museum that either is doing a deep dive into a specific topic related to the Holocaust, but then also allows us to have a broader conversation with our visitors about social justice and human rights issues or crimes against humanity, which certainly the American slave trade is, we felt it was an important story for us to tell. 
And Arielle, this is an exhibit that you saw somewhere else and thought this would be a good idea for us? Yeah, the um, the exhibition was created by the Historic New Orleans Collection. Um, it came out of a symposium that they had about the domestic slave trade and about being sold in the United States, human beings being sold in the United States. The exhibition um, from that symposium, the National Endowment's for the Humanities, gave the museum um, funding to have an exhibition. It then traveled to three other venues, and I saw it at the last venue in uh, Austin, Texas. And um, although the exhibition was not supposed to travel beyond that, we went to the museum and asked if they would bring it out for one more venue, and we um, are the hosts of that exhibition now. And as I understand it, in New Orleans, this was the first time they had an exhibit like this, even though it is the it is a slave trade center? Yeah. So New Orleans was the center of the domestic slave trade. Um, the, the historic New Orleans collection had been around for 50 years, and in 50 years, they had not done an exhibition about New Orleans and its role in the slave trade. And so they um, realized when they put up the show that many people in New Orleans didn't realize how much a part of New Orleans and the businesses of New Orleans, all aspects of it were involved in the domestic slave trade. And just going through the catalog, which is excellent, it really reinforces that, that uh, there was such a infrastructure for everything about, I mean, I think we just don't know enough about what happened during the domestic slave trade. Are you, I imagine you're seeing that kind of reaction from people who, who see the exhibit. So I think we're seeing from our visitors, our audiences that came from the opening or this weekend where we saw a record uh, attendance at the at the museum and visitorship, we're seeing people um, that are very thankful and appreciative that as an institution, we are willing to talk about and cover what I think is a very complex but um, often not covered part of our history, American history. Ariel, tell us about some of the things that people see in the exhibit that are eye-opening. So in the exhibit are um, a wide variety of, of really incredible objects. There are, um, there are shipping manifests that detail um, human cargo being shipped from the Upper South to the Lower South or Deep South. There are um, uh, uh, and let's bog down on yeah. that for a second, because yeah. that's like the whole point of the exhibit, really, the yeah. domestic slave trade. Um, people who saw 12 Years a Slave, uh, this is what was going on after we closed the international slave trade. Correct. The North was going to the South. Right, correct. The The North had had um, the tobacco industry. And after the American Revolution, the tobacco industry really took a big dive and they moved over to wheat, where in the South at the same point in time, at, with the invention of the cotton gin, it made um, the need for cotton much higher. And so the South created a large area of our agricultural along with the Louisiana Purchase and the taking of Native American lands, it opened up this whole area that was ready for cotton production and then in Louisiana specifically sugar production. All of those, um, the cotton and sugar industries required a lot more labor. So that labor then gets transferred from the upper south to the lower south. And so you were seeing things like uh, the slave collar bell that is in the exhibition. Yes. For you're doing all this transferring. You've got slave pens. You've got collar bells on people. It's um, you're there's a thing. Right. So something that's also 
um, unique about this exhibition and about the objects that are on display is Louisiana, everything in Louisiana had to be notarized. And then all of those notarized documents were then kept within the archives in Louisiana, where oftentimes these um, um, sales of human beings or some of these other documents would have been held with the slave owner or the slave trader and then now are gone from the historic record. Because Louisiana had all of this notarized, it's all been saved. So you have these different um, objects and then you have items like the slave collar that you referenced, which speaks to the fact that um, whole families were um, sold together, but then at points in time would also be um, a sale would happen and a family would be broken apart. The most common reason that people would um, flee was if there was an impending sale where a family was likely going to be pulled apart, um, people would try and escape. Or if a trade, if a sale had already happened, and um, and a family was broken apart, someone would flee to try and connect back with their family members. So the slave collar that's on display was actually punishment for someone who had run away and had been recaptured. We're talking about the exhibit Purchased Lives, the American Slave Trade from 1808 to 1865. It's at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. And with me is Ariel Weininger and Kelly Zaney from the Illinois Holocaust Museum. Uh, To um, continue on about the kind of all in on the – the um, the culture of this. There's a section of the exhibition that deals with um, how businesses and everyone was involved. And I was reading in the catalog about insurance companies insuring the movement of slaves from this place to another, and in case there are losses. Um, there was a the, the infrastructure was complete. Yeah, so New Orleans was the um, already the center of agriculture in the in the Deep South, and so businesses would be centered there. So it's it's logical then that because of that, the the center of the trade slave trade becomes New Orleans. Um, in the exhibition, yes, as you said, you'll see um, an insurance policy that was for twenty two people being shipped from the uh, Upper South to the Lower South for fourteen thousand dollars. Um, there are um, there are there's information about hospitals that were there at the time. There's a really incredible object from the Turo Infirmary that details how people were brought into the hospital to be made better because they were very sick from this transport from the north to the south just so that this slave uh, trader could get a higher price. It wasn't for the well-being of this person. It was so that the slave trader could get a higher price for this person. They would be seen as well. Um, And then there also are items in the exhibition. There are two pieces of clothing. One of them is a headdress for a woman. The other is a coat from um, Brooks Brothers. It was made out of cotton that was from the South that got sent north for processing in uh, probably Massachusetts, uh, turned into a jacket by Brooks Brothers and then sent back south to be worn by an enslaved person who served inside of a home. How do you get the voice of the slaves in the exhibition? So, again, as we talked about, many of the items that are in the exhibition would have been owned by the um, slave owners or the slave traders. Um, So it's important, though, for the curator of the exhibition, she really wanted to make sure that the voice of the slave that the enslaved person was in the exhibition. 
So the way that that's done is there are, um, along with 12 Years a Slave, the book by Solomon Northup um, that was published in 1853. Um, there's his story. There's another, uh, there's another narrative that was written by William Wells Brown, who also was enslaved for many years um, and had prepared people for um, going up onto the auction block. And then there also are um, segments of um, the transcripts of former enslaved people that were taken from 1936 to 1938 as part of the WPA Federal Writers Project. There was something called slave narratives. Those were taken of former enslaved people. There are problems with them. They were um, primarily done by white Southerners. They were the interviewers. So the, the, the point of reference is very different than the person who was being spoken to. And yet still, um, as those are um, authentic recordings of the time period, they were utilized um, in the exhibition. Can you tell us about someone who was um, in the slave trade whose, whose voice is in the exhibition? As we said, Solomon Northup is in the exhibition. There is a woman um, uh, named uh, her first. Her last name is um, Mrs. Garlic, and she's in the exhibition. She talks about that she was um, very young when the war came, and then um, she is she remembers back as to what was happening at that point in time. But um, yeah, so you can see those those different narratives when you come to the exhibit. Now, I understand there is a Chicago add-on to the Purchased Lives uh, exhibit. Uh, Kelly, do you want to tell us about the Lost Friends ads that are in the exhibit? Sure. When, so when you exit the exhibition or as you're getting ready to leave the exhibition, after the passage of uh, the 13th Amendment that we see the abolishment of slavery, we see a number of ads that are being placed in different papers in the South and the North trying to locate lost relatives, spouses, children, grandparents, aunts and uncles. And what we wanted to do in order to connect this history with our visitors and to show you that it really was a history that affected the nation as a whole is we decided to highlight lost friends ads for those that were placed seeking relatives in Illinois, specifically Chicago. So you can see this incredible, huge wall graphic of blown up ads and be able to read uh, the the really heartbreaking stories of these freed people looking for their lost relatives. That is... Um that's pretty raw. I imagine this is the um, you know this is that's the way you the only way you could do it at the time. Um, yeah, and what's fascinating about it is that the last ad was placed 1912, so 50 years after slavery comes looking. to end, people are still looking. And with the testimony that Ariel talked about, and the artifacts, and the and the lost friends ads, it just reminds you of the human toll of this history. You know, I, whenever I go over this history and learn new things about it, it is always so devastating. And, and I think about the reparations discussion that's happening in this country. And I noticed that a few years ago, the UN Working Group on Experts on People of African Descent said that some sort of compensation is necessary to combat the disadvantage caused by 245 years of illegally allowing the sale of people on the color of their skin. And I, I uh, you know, I just don't. Uh, I don't know how to devo- avoid that kind of uh, discussion when you see material like this. It must be something that um, pops up. 
It does. I think those are conversations that we need to have and that we want to have with this exhibition, whether it's through the dialogue we have with visitors who are taking tours of the museum or uh, having exchanges with our, our volunteers or our docents, or if it's through our programming or our workshops that we're doing with teachers. We, we need to be able to have what can be very uncomfortable conversations that are brought up with, uh, with this exhibition and be okay being uncomfortable uh, and moving that conversation forward. That's our, that's our hope with this exhibit. Now, you've got some partnerships and interesting events that go along with the exhibit. Uh, what's going on there? So we have a number of really great Chicago-based partners, including the DuSable Museum of African American History and the Chicago History Museum. We have a series of uh, programming, starting with the world premiere of Martin Rising, which is um, an incredible um, uh, performance, a theatrical adoption of the book Martin Rising uh, by Coretta Scott King that will be at the museum. We also are doing a partnership with Victory Gardens Theater, where we are doing scenes from Pipeline, which depicts a mother trying to navigate class and race and parental uh, duty and kind of the state of American education. And I think one of the exciting programs additionally that we're doing is at the Chicago History Museum where we'll talk about slavery in Illinois and the role of slave owners and abolitionists in the Underground Railroad. Uh, well, it sounds like a terrific job, and thank you for bringing this to us. It's such a, an important thing to think about and talk about. And um, Ariel, the, the exhibit's here for how long, or where are we going to? The exhibit is here through August 25th. This is a, a good long run of an exhibition for us. We wanted to make sure that it was up during the school year and also during the summertime so that if people had a busy school year, they could come over the summer and come with their family and friends. I imagine the um, students' reaction to this must be really interesting. You're bringing students? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the student ahead. reaction has been incredibly overwhelming. Uh, over 3,500 uh, students right now are scheduled just to come uh, to see this exhibition. And I would say while the exhibit is up uh, through August, uh, right now during Black History Month, every Saturday is free admission uh, to come and check out the exhibition. And then additionally so, uh, this is our 10th anniversary year as a museum. So going uh, through the end of August while the exhibit is here, the 10th um, day of every month is also free for visitors. Kelly Zaney is Vice President of Education and Exhibitions at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. Ariel Weininger is the Chief Curator of Collections and Exhibitions there. And you can see Purchase Lives, the American Slave Trade from 1808 to 1865 through August 25th. Thanks a lot for joining us, and congratulations on the exhibit. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Tomorrow on Worldview, you will hear J.B. Pritzker. He'll be talking about his budget address. So we'll be back on Thursday with a conversation about a financial transactions tax and uh, what that might mean for Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.